would take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Excuse me. Luke chapter 20, verse 27, beginning there. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother would take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that they durst not ask him any question at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then his son? Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes, and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. The title of this message this morning, Textual Critics to Self-Destruction. Textual critics to self-destruction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your precious word. I pray as we look into the word of God, I pray that you would uh, speak to hearts and help us to have understanding. And Father, I pray you'd help us not to uh, question as to critique the word of God, but Father, help us to question to seek the truth and to seek the truth with all of our hearts, soul, and mind, to accept the word of God as it is inspired revelation from thee, and, and, and be counted worthy of that resurrection of, of the living. So Lord, just speak, have your will and way, may you be glorified, we do pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now the Sadducees were the ancient version of modern liberal theologians. They were anti-supernaturalistic only accepting the first five books of Moses as authentic, and disregarded what was written in those books when it pleased them to do so. They did not believe in immortality, spirits, or angels. One 
commentator said, quote, they were aristocratic, high priestly party, worldly minded and very ready to cooperate with the Romans, which of course enabled them to maintain their privileged position and power. This was the Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. They were, you might say, naturalists. But anyway, they come to Jesus here with some questions, and I've got three things I want to mention from this passage, and then several uh, subpoints. First of all, the the scriptures question verses twenty eight through thirty three. They come with this question. They say, "Master, mass, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die." Now, this is the part of scripture they claim to accept. What parts they like? But anyway, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die, having a child, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Therefore, there were seven brothers, and they give him this, they give him this story about this wife who had seven brothers, and they all died, and then she finally died. So the question is, in verse 33, therefore in the resurrection... Whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Now they, they, they ask the question is this, they believe in the resurrection, but they don't. That's why they're asking the question. Uh, this, this question comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. We'll go there for just a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is where Moses gave this instruction, which actually was practiced Prior to Moses, if you remember, Judah had three sons, and I think the oldest one was Ur, and he was wicked, and the Lord slew him, and he had no children, so Judah gave uh, his widow his second son, and he didn't want to to raise up seed to his brother, uh, so he spilled it out on the ground, and the Lord killed him, and uh, so so this was a practice that was, this was something that was practiced prior to this time, but but here it's stated in, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall, shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, The husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Now, James Fawcett Brown in the commentary said this, quote, This usage existed before the age of Moses, but the Mosaic law rendered the custom obligatory on younger brothers or the nearest of kin. To marry the widow by associating the natural desire of perpetuating a brother's name with, and this is important, with the preservation of property 
in the Hebrew families and tribes. If the younger brother declined to comply with the law, the widow brought her claim before the authorities of the place, at a public assembly, the gate of the city, and he having declared his refusal, she was ordered to loose the thong of his shoe, a sign of degradation, followed up by an act of spitting, which is the strongest expression of ignominy and contempt among Eastern people. And the shoe was kept by the magistrate as evidence of the transaction and the parties separated, unquote. So this was the practice that they're referring to here in Luke chapter 20. And they're saying that there was this one woman who had seven brethren. And if there's a resurrection, whose wife is she going to be then? Of course, you know, this, this is also referred to in Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And we find there that, of course, that, that uh, Boaz not only got Ruth, he bought all that was Elimelech's, Malian, and Chilean's. So it's important to understand that property rights go along with this. And this, this was the part of the reason for this, uh, was to, was to uh, 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 preserve the preservation of property in the Hebrew families. And so the reason for the question is to invalidate the scripture to be taken literally, therefore discrediting the resurrection or life beyond the grave. And future judgment of God. If there's no life beyond the grave, there's no future judgment of God. And we're going to see that's really the reason for this question, I believe. So that's the, 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 the scriptures that are questioned. I want you to notice that Jesus here, the, the second point, the law established. Verse 34 through 38. Uh, and and he, he answers, said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrections. So I want to notice several things here. First of all, resurrection life is different from this present life. You know, they, they were asking this question on the assumption that life in the resurrection is like life now. Well, it's not. It's not. They're going to be different than this present life. Uh, one commentator said, quote, Most likely there will be no marriage in heaven simply because there will be no need for it. When God established marriage, he did, he did so to fulfill certain needs. First, he saw that Adam was in need of a companion. Eve was the solution to the problem of Adam's loneliness as well as his need for a helpmeet. In heaven, however, there will be no loneliness, nor will there be any need for a helpmeet. We will be surrounded by a multitude of believers and angels, and all our needs will be met, including the need for companionship, quote-unquote. So, you know, the marriage was designed to meet several needs, and, of course, one was uh, the, the need for Adam's loneliness or to be a helpmeet. Second, marriage is also designed... God created marriage as a means of procreation and filling the earth with human beings. You know, that was a command God gave to Adam and Eve, and that was a command God gave to Noah to multiply and replenish the earth. Uh, but in heaven, however, will not be populated by procreation. You know, if, if, if there wasn't procreation on earth, pretty soon there wouldn't 
be anybody. But that's not necessary in heaven because we'll never die. We will never die. And those who go to heaven get there by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by physical birth. So they will not be created there by means of reproduction. Therefore, there is no purpose for marriage in heaven since there is no procreation or loneliness. Now, note two things here. First of all, you know, family, as we think about this, you know, I believe that family relationships will still be known in life in the, in, in the world beyond. Uh, you know, the rich man that Jesus uh, spoken of in Luke chapter 16 uh, uh, described or was aware of his family relationships even though he was in hell. So he was still aware of those relationships. So I think we'll still know our family relationships. And secondly, the glory of heaven will be a relationship with God that surpasses anything else, including present family relationships. I know that's hard for us to understand or comprehend here, but we'll go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. You know, God doesn't tell us everything about this, so, so there's, you know, we can't be too dogmatic about some of these things. But Revelation 21, verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these are words are true and faithful. So all, he said all things are going to be new. In chapter 22, Verses 1 through 7. Again, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. What's the result of the curse? It's death. Well, there's going to be no death. No curse. Um, so again, there'll be no need for procreation. Uh, but there'll be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They no, need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. He said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto us unto his servants, the things which must shortly be done. So, so the glories of heaven you know, will be a relationship with God that per- surpasses anything that we can imagine even here in this life. So, so resurrection life is different than this present life. Now, the second thing here I want you to see is the authority of the words, words, and the word words is important here. This is, this is the important word in this statement. 
the authority of the words, plural, of God in Scripture. Notice verses 36 and 37. He says, Neither can they die anymore. For they are equal unto the angels and are the, are the, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he, what's that next word? Is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Uh, he is, that's present tense. And of course, if you go back to Exodus when this was originally stated by Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, present tense. Well, these men were already dead. He didn't say, I was. He said, I am. I am. And so words are important. A two-letter word could drastically change the meaning here. And this is the this is the the work. This is the work. You know, textual criticism is not new. This is the work of textual critics. You know, Matthew five in Matthew five seventeen and eighteen. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, it's not, well, that's Matthew 24, 35, but Matthew 5, 17 and 18, think not that I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass in law, till all be fulfilled. Uh, and, of course, Matthew 24, 35, 7, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, plural, shall not pass away. Paul makes an interesting statement in 1 Timothy 6.20 when he says this, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoid profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. Textual criticism is called a science. I looked up some definitions Wikipedia said this, textual criticism is a branch of textual scholarship, philology, and literary criticism that is concerned with the identification of textual variants in either manuscripts or printed books. Scribes, notice this statement, scribes can make alterations when copying manuscripts by hand. Yeah, they could. We're talking about the words of God. We're not talking about the words of man. A uh, website called Got Questions. Textual criticism, what is it? Answer, quote, simply stated, textual criticism is a method used to determine what the original manuscripts of the Bible said. The original manuscripts of the Bible were either lost, hidden, or no longer in existence. That statement is true. What we do have is tens of thousands of copies of the original manuscripts dating from the 1st to the 15th centuries A.D. for the New Testament. I'm not sure there's tens of thousands but there is thousands, and dating from the 4th century B.C. to the 15th century A.D. for the Old Testament. In these manuscripts, there are many minor and a few significant differences. Textual criticism is the study of these manuscripts and attempt to determine 
what the original reading actually was. Now, if you accept the Bible as just another book of man, I would agree with that statement. We're not dealing with of of a book uh, written by some man. We're dealing with the words of God. And the Bible says that that it is the inspired will of God. Um, David Cloud on his uh, in an article he wrote called Textual Criticism Drawn for the well, from the Wells of Infidelity in November 2009 said this, quote, Through diligent and long research into the subject of Bible texts and versions, I have come to the conviction that modern textual criticism is infidelity. Most of the men who develop the theories of textual criticism in an attempt to overthrow that tyrannous received text, that's the text receptus from which we get our King James Bible, as some of them called it, were rationalists who denied the supernatural inspiration of Holy Scripture, unquote. And of course, here you have a group of men, the Sadducees, who denied the supernatural. Therefore, they denied the inspiration of Scripture or the preservation of Scripture. But Jesus refers to them to the authority of the words of Scripture to answer their question. And he said, he is not the God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then I want you to notice the third thing. Their hypocrisy exposed. Go to verse 45. Then in the audience of all the people, he showed unto his disciples, or he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk on long robes, and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. <laughs> I, was, I was reading one commentator, and he said that G. Campbell Morgan said this about these long prayers. He said, he said uh, uh, you know, when a man goes away from his wife, if it's a short stay away, he writes short letters. And because he's only going to be going a short time. If he's a long way off, or he's away a long time, the letters get longer. He said, if he's praying long prayers, it must be a long way from God. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. But, but, but uh, what I want to say here is, first of all, they feign themselves godly men, but they rest the scriptures to justify their own wickedness and deceit. They devour widows' houses. Who are we talking about being provided for in this question? Widows and property being passed on and maintained in a family. And here they are devouring widows' houses. Didn't I tell you there was a motive to their question? Harry Ironside said in his commentary, quote, many of them were moneylenders who would take mortgages on the homes of widows at exorbitant interest so that the poor widow would have the trouble keeping up the payments and when they got in arrears, these hypocrites would foreclose the mortgages and take everything from the helpless widows. Was it legal? Yes. But it was forbidden by God's law. 
It was forbidden by God's law. He said, imagine one of these hypocrites foreclosing on a widow's home on Friday evening and the Sabbath standing up in the synagogue praying a long prayer. You see, they were guilty of the very thing they questioned from the Scriptures. See, this law was given in part to protect property rights. Ruth 4, 9 and 10 again, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was the Limonex, all that was Chileans and Malans of the hand of Naomi, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead among, upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. So this was, this was done to preserve the property rights that was Elimelech's. And the firstborn would, be, would, would get the property that was Elimelech's of this relationship. James Fawcett Brown said, quote, taking advantage of their helpless condition confiding character to obtain possession of their property while by their long prayers they made them believe they were raised far above filthy lucre. So much the greater damnation awaits them. And so they rest the scriptures to justify their own wickedness And I want you to know, secondly, he demonstrates their rejection of the word of God as authoritative. Go over to verse 41. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? So, in response to their question, of course, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy with his answer, but he demonstrates the fact that they really are in rejection of the word of God as authoritative by the question he asked them. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1, which simply says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So David is saying... The Lord said to my Lord. Now, notice the word Lord, the word Lord, the first word Lord is all caps. It's all caps. That means, of course, in the King James Bible, that means it is the name Jehovah. Jehovah God. So we might say, Jehovah said unto my Lord. And the, word, the second word, or the name Lord, is, is uh, a, just a capital L, which would be Koryos, which, means, which the, the, the name there means Master or Lord, one we, you would be subservient to. So, and so he says, so really what we're saying here is, Jehovah said unto my Lord. Now, if he is his Lord... How can he be his son? And if, and if they would have acknowledged and accepted the scriptures, they would have to accept him 
as the Messiah, because this is a clear reference to the Messiah. It is saying he is the eternal God, born of the Virgin Mary, of the house of David, and is therefore also not only David's Lord, but he is also David's son. So he is both David's son and Lord. You notice there's no answer given. So I believe what Jesus is doing here is he simply demonstrated to them they don't accept the word of God as their authority. Some people will seek to discredit the scriptures to justify their own unlawful deeds. To avoid the certainty, I believe, of the coming judgment of Almighty God. You know, their rejection, of course, will culminate in the denial of Christ and their own eternal damnation at the second resurrection, when the wicked dead we raised and stand at the great white throne in judgment. You see, these, these men, they, they, they want to justify their wickedness, and they don't want to have to face the idea that, I'm going to have to stand before, because if there is a resurrection, what does that mean? I'm going to meet God. Is that not what many people do today? They take the parts of the Bible they like and throw out the parts they don't like. Or find fault with it. Now we need to accept the scriptures as our authority. In John 12, 47, 48, Jesus said, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We are going to be judged by the word of God. We cannot avoid it. You can discredit it all you want. You can throw it aside and reject it all you want. But the end of the deal is you're going to have to be, you're going to have to stand before God and you're going to be judged by this book. John 3.18 He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of the Son. You know, we, we will receive, you know, if, you, if you were to go to a court for a hearing, what you'll see is they'll have men or women brought in to give testimony like, to the case that's being tried. I remember I was on a jury for a murder case, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, maybe longer than that now, uh, in Lewisburg. And they, they brought in these witnesses, and 
And, and of course, we, we listen to these witnesses uh, give their testimony of what happened. Uh, one of them was a witness of a, a 911 call. And, uh, you know, without a doubt, witness is very clear. We accepted that witness as the truth. And, and he says, if we're going to receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Verse 10 says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. See, these Sadducees were calling God a liar. But if you reject the words and the witness of God, are you not calling him a liar? Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record. God had given us to eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. You see, you can critic, critique the Scriptures all you want, but you're critiquing them to your own. Self-destruction. In the end, God's going to show you for who you really are. Now, we need to accept the words of God as authoritative. As it is in truth, the very words of the living God. That he is the God of the living. And we will have to stand before him one day. And give an account. You know, how do you view the scriptures? Have you received them? Have you believed them? And therefore received life eternal through the Son Jesus Christ? Or do you continually question and doubt?